Hello, and welcome to another episode of Assassinations Podcast. We're continuing our season on the lives and deaths of royalty by looking at a horrific crime in which almost an entire dynasty was wiped out. You've maybe seen The Red Wedding on the TV show Game of Thrones? Well, let me tell you, real life can be as cruel, gruesome, and full of scheming as any work of fiction. Welcome to Assassinations Podcast, where we delve into some of history's most notorious political killings and explore the mysteries and conspiracies that surround them. Time and again, assassins have wielded the blade, the poison vial, the bullet, and the bomb to shape the course of history. I'm your host, Neil Cooper, and in this podcast, I'm going to investigate the lives and deaths of some of history's most colourful characters. The Narayanhiti Palace stands in the middle of Kathmandu, the capital and most populous city of the Himalayan nation of Nepal. Sprawling in a valley at an altitude of 4,600 feet above sea level, surrounded by some of the highest mountains on earth, the city is said to be one of the oldest continuously inhabited places. For millennia, it has been a centre of commerce and religious pilgrimage. In Buddhist tradition, it is said that the site of Kathmandu was once a vast lake filled with snakes, until Manjushri, a bodhisattva or enlightened being, drained the water by cutting a great gash in the bank of the lake with his sword, sending all the water, and all the snakes, cascading down the Himalayas into India. Throughout the centuries, Buddhist monks and Hindu siddhas came to the valley of Kathmandu to find enlightenment and spread wisdom. Powerful kingdoms rose and fell. Buddhist Tibetans, Muslim Turkic peoples, the Hindu Gorkha kingdom, and then the British all left their mark on the city and Nepal more broadly. These days, Kathmandu is a thriving metropolis, the centre of government and business in Nepal, and a major global tourist destination. Many thousands of visitors arrive there every year, the city being a principal gateway to explore the Himalayan mountains. Its narrow streets are filled with mopeds, motor rickshaws, merchants and gawping tourists. The eaves and balconies overhead festooned with colourful prayer flags. Today, Nepal is a republic, but up until 2008, it was a monarchy. For many years, the country had been racked by civil conflict, in which various factions, especially a Maoist guerrilla army, had fought against the royalist forces. 
King Gyanendra had come to power in 2001, following the infamous Nepalese Royal Massacre, in which nine members of the royal family, including the then king and queen, were killed in a mass shooting during a family gathering at the palace. The crime was seemingly committed by Crown Prince Dipendra, the heir to the throne, who then tried to commit suicide by shooting himself in the head, succumbing to his injury three days later. No especially convincing motive has ever been put forward for Dipendra murdering his own parents and other family members, only to take his own life. As we shall see, there may be more to it than the official story. You see, there are dark rumours that there was a plot in the palace. So who else might have been behind the assassination of the Nepalese royals? Gyanendra Shah reigned not once but twice as king of Nepal. As a child, he was briefly king from 1950 to 1951, when his grandfather fled the country amidst political turmoil, receiving asylum in India. Gyanendra belonged to the Shah dynasty, which had ruled all or parts of Nepal since the Gorkha kingdom of the mid-16th century. During his very brief childhood reign, Gyanendra was a mere pawn in the political scheming of the time. In the early 1950s, Nepal was caught in the middle of powerful geopolitical currents. To the south lay India, to the north was Tibet, and beyond that, China, which was ruled by Chairman Mao's Communist Party following the 1949 Chinese Revolution. The Communists were moving into Tibet, aiming to take it over. And India was none too happy about having the Chinese army approaching its northern border. Therefore, the status of Nepal was of great interest to both sides. For over a century, the Nepalese royal family had been figureheads in a system where real power lay in the hands of the Rana family. The Ranas were an aristocratic dynasty that dominated the government of Nepal as allies, effectively as clients, of the British Empire. With Indian independence from Britain in 1947, the post-colonial government in New Delhi was led by Prime Minister Jawaharlal Nehru. In an effort to establish an allied state on India's northern border, Nehru plotted to get rid of the Ranas and impose a new political leadership on Nepal. To this end, he supported the then Nepalese king, Trebovan, who was the grandfather of Gyanendra, against the domination of the Rana clan. In a power struggle, Trebovan was forced into exile in India, and the Nepalese Prime Minister, Mohan Rana, declared young Gyanendra to be the new king. An Indian-backed revolution then swept over Nepal in 1951, ending the domination of the Rana family over the country. Young Gyanendra was removed from the throne and his grandfather restored. The same year, the Chinese consolidated their rule over Tibet. The power of the monarchy in Nepal was reduced at this time, and some democratic forms were introduced. 
Reduced to the rank of prince, Gyanendra was sent to study at a Jesuit school in India. Returning to Nepal, in the late 1960s he served in various political posts until the bloody events of June 1st, 2001. And what about the alleged perpetrator of the massacre? Who was Crown Prince Dipendra? And was there anything in his biography that might provide us with some indication as to why he might have killed almost his entire family before shooting himself in the head? Born in 1971 in the royal palace, Dipendra was educated in Kathmandu before being sent to England to study at the elite Eton College School, the alma mater of many other royals and aristocrats, including Britain's princes William and Harry. Returning to Nepal, he continued his studies, then joined the country's military academy and served in its armed forces. A keen sportsman, he travelled the world in support of various Nepalese national athletic teams. Something of an intellectual, he also obtained a PhD and he often wrote articles in periodicals on various subjects. There was nothing particularly odd about the Crown Prince that anyone could really notice. Certainly nothing in his behaviour to indicate that he was capable of an act of psychotic violence. In fact, he was generally regarded as being very mild-mannered and was well-liked by his fellow students, his family, and more widely amongst many ordinary Nepalese people. He was very sociable, enjoying going out with friends to restaurants, bars and parties, but he could also be serious and studious when necessary. All in all, he seemed like a fairly well-adjusted and actually quite fun personality. Dipendra was a collector of firearms, but that was pretty normal in Nepalese society. He was an army officer after all, and the country was in a state of civil war with an armed Maoist rebellion, so it was arguably only sensible to stay well-armed. The royals were, after all, prime targets for the insurrectionists. His father, the king, almost always carried a gun, so I'm not sure there's anything significant about the fact that Dipendra possessed many firearms himself. And yet, at the age of 29, he supposedly, for no clear reason, walked into a private gathering of his family in the grounds of the palace, carrying several weapons, and opened fire, killing his father mother, his younger brother and sister, and other relatives. Maybe a romantic problem lay behind the crime? Dipendra had seemingly fallen in love with an Indian princess while he was living in England and apparently wanted to marry her. His father disapproved of the match, however. So, Perhaps the Crown Prince was so enraged by this that he was driven not only to kill his father, but his entire family. Well, I guess that is possible. But why would he then kill himself? Well, maybe out of guilt or fear of punishment. There is another theory, though, widespread in Nepal at the time and ever since, that Dipendra was not the shooter after all. Rather, the royal family was murdered by assassins, 
possibly within their own security team. Rather than being the perpetrator, was Dipendra, like the rest of his family, actually one of their victims? Was blame merely pinned on him after the fact by the real culprit or culprits? There are eyewitnesses to the crime, however, who have stated that it was Dipendra who went on the killing spree. One of his cousins, a woman named Kitaki Chester, who was injured in the attack, stated that she clearly saw Dipendra open fire. The look in his face was very scary. I still remember it, and still it gives me the creeps when I remember his face. He looked exactly like the Terminator 2, absolutely expressionless, but very concentrated. And it still haunts me, that look of his. Yet another theory is that Dipendra did commit the crime, but that he was encouraged to do so by his uncle, Gayanendra, so he could claim the throne. The official investigation into the massacre lasted just one week. From the start, it was assumed by the investigators that Dipendra had acted alone, so no serious effort was made to look for accomplices or anyone else who might have had some advanced knowledge of what the Crown Prince had been planning. A former palace courtier named Kumar Shah wrote a book in which he questioned why the investigation was so perfunctory and did not attempt to uncover any motive for the crime. He claimed to have asked the new king, Gayanendra, to broaden the scope of the investigation to consider the possibility that some other people might have been involved. But the king refused. Essentially, the whole thing looked a heck of a lot like a cover-up, designed to sweep the biggest political crime in modern Nepalese history right under the carpet. While his brother had been a figurehead in a constitutional monarchy in which real day-to-day -day power was delegated to a democratic government, in 2001, Gayanendra quickly made it clear that he wanted to restore the absolute powers of the throne. He dissolved Parliament and jailed his opponents. He amped up the war against the Maoist insurgents, who only gained support as a result of the king's autocratic ways. And in 2005, Gayanendra cancelled scheduled elections and suspended the constitution taking direct control of the government, justified by the need to suppress the Maoist rebellion, he faced broad opposition from various political factions, including those who had previously been supportive of the royal family. Isolated in the palace, his reign in crisis, facing a revolution, he was forced to restore parliamentary government in 2006. But it wasn't enough. In 2008, he was deposed. A new constitution was established that abolished the monarchy and brought the Maoists and their allies into government. Gayanendra was pushed into exile. His centuries-old House of Shah was done, removed from power and, because of the massacre, almost entirely extinguished from history.
thanks for listening to this episode of Assassinations Podcast. It was researched and written by me, Neil Cooper. Lindsay Morse produces and edits the show. Our theme music was written and performed by Graham Ronald. If you're enjoying the current season of the show, then you might like to check out, if you haven't already, my episodes on the lives and deaths of the early emperors of Rome. I covered Julius Caesar, Caligula, and Nero, and I must say, it was enormous fun to explore their lives, consider the assessments and prejudices of the ancient historians towards them, and to tarry a while beneath the colonnades of Imperial Rome, observing the thrilling and dangerous world of men and women so powerful that they were declared gods, even though the blades of assassins proved just how mortal they were. The further one goes back in history, how can I put it, the more fun one can have. While things that take place in recent and certainly within living memory should be treated with respect, we can, shall we say, get a bit more juicy with death in the ancient world. Anyway, I hope you'll give those episodes a whirl. Please join me next month as we consider one of the best-known attempted assassinations in history, an event that would have been a truly stunning mass, mass murder. Let me give you a hint as to the subject. Remember, remember, the 5th of November. Until then, goodbye. Goodbye.